Last week, we began uh, studying in John chapter 13, uh, looking at it as a major break in the Gospel of John, because up till then, the first 12 chapters, as you know, if you've been with us, are Jesus's public ministry. And at the end of chapter 12, he concludes his public ministry. And then uh, we open chapter 13 in the upper room. We looked last week at, at some length at Mount Zion and where the upper room is located and uh, looked at, at sort of the geography and then actually went inside of the upper room that actually the, the one that exists now, which is not the same as the one that existed then. Uh, uh, looked at the Byzantine Empire and the, and the the architecture is Byzantine and the one that exists now. But anyway, we looked at all of that and then we went through the first five verses. We're going to go through the first five verses again briefly this morning because it's all about the context, and as we study God's Word, we do well to broaden our study. If you have heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I like to teach using a concept that I call zoom out and zoom in. So what that is, is in teaching the Bible in context, I use four different contexts. I use the textual context, which is looking at the original language. I'm not a Greek scholar by my own admission, but I can use a lexicon and I can look at and, and study the, the verbiage in the, Old, or in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. So I look at the textual context and then I look at the contextual context. And that's what I want to make sure that we maintain here because it's very important, especially coming into the middle of some dialogue and some things going on, which is what we're doing this morning, that we back up and that we include the context. And so, and then I look at the cultural context, what was applicable back in the first century? What do we bring forward? What do we leave behind? Because there are cultural things that are applicable only to the first century, and there are things that we can actually apply to our lives today. The other is the historical context, looking at Israel as being a captive nation under Rome with a puppet government, the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and seeing how all of that plays into uh, the story that we're looking at in the Gospel of John. So the first five verses we looked at as being somewhat of a living parable. It begins with Jesus loving his own. And we'll um, take a look here at a couple things before we actually get into the text. Something that's really important that we uh, must keep in mind as we study the Bible, as we study especially the New Testament, is to keep our focus on the person and the work, the person of Christ, who is Jesus? What's he about? And, and, and what, is, what is he like? Uh, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews. Mark presents Jesus, the suffering servant. Luke presents Jesus, the man. And John presents Jesus as God. And so as we were looking at this, in the other three Gospels, we see a lot about Jesus, which is good. And it's great information, necessary information. John is distinct insofar as we see the heart of Jesus coming out. We see his heart towards his people, towards his men. We see his heart even towards the religious leaders that he was trying to get through to them as well. Uh, and, and the door was open for repentance for them up until the very moment that they turned their back on him. And Jesus even pleading that they be forgiven because they didn't understand what they were doing from the cross. And so as we look at the person of Jesus, we want to understand what is his character? What is his nature? His nature is fully God, fully man. 
We understand that. We see that revealed in many places in the scripture. Uh, We also see that his character is all important as we understand what is it to be conformed to the image of his son, which is what Romans 8, 29 tells us. Uh, So as that is the goal, our goal is learning to think like Jesus, learning to be more like him. Well, how do we do that? We discover what he's like. And this is a great passage in John 13 to discover some core things about the nature and the character of Christ. Because he does some very important things. And then he actually stops uh, with the sort of the object lesson. He gives an object lesson. And then he stops and he unpacks it for his guys. He actually begins to teach them in this. You'll notice in the Gospel of John that this upper room discourse that we're in, uh, the guys being in the upper room for John 13 and 14, and then probably up on the roof, as I mentioned last week, for 15, 16, and into 17, they don't cross over the Kidron until John chapter 18, when Jesus goes in and immediately is betrayed by Judas. We'll talk about that more as we go along. But It's important as we look at the person, we'll see four examples in these 17 verses of John 13. The person of Christ, we see that his character is shown in that he is love personified in verses one and two. Uh, We see that Jesus loved his own and he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. Uh, So he's love personified. He is the personification. He doesn't have love. He is love. If you look in 1 John, written by the same guy that wrote this, he says that God is love. Uh, it's not something that God possesses. He is the embodiment of love. He is the definition of love. And we see that his love is poured out for his men here. We also see that he is humility, personified. He doesn't have humility. He is humble. He is the definition of humility. And, and he, when he stops and he uh, takes off the, the clothes he had there and wraps himself with a towel and washes his men's feet, he is walking out humility. I mentioned last week, he doesn't stop demonstrating what it is to be Messiah, what it is to be the leader, all of that, so that he can wash his disciples' feet. He does that because he's God, because he is humble, because he's a servant. It's part of who he is, and it's part of what he wants to communicate to us, his church, not the building, but the people in it. It's part of the attributes he wants to communicate to us as we walk out what it is to be a Christian. So we see that in verse 3 and 5 that that he is humility. And so in verses 6 through 11, we begin to look at not the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. And he does this spiritual cleansing. He tells the guys, you don't understand what I'm doing now. We'll cover that briefly this morning, but you will. And and so uh, we see that he is giving a, a very clear, it's a, it's a parable, because, and what is a parable? It means the word is parabola, and it means to lay down alongside of, okay? So he takes a spiritual truth, a spiritual concept, and in order to define it, in order to explain it, in order to make it understandable for us, he, he makes a, a, a he, in this case, it's washing feet, uh, and that is, it's, he's laying down a spiritual principle, a powerful principle, and he's actually laying out the work that he will do the work that he'll accomplish at the cross by, by taking their dirt onto himself, which is what he does with us. And so we see that in this, the work that he's doing, the spiritual cleansing, he's using this metaphorically uh, to illustrate the work that he has to do. So again, the person and the work, all important. If you change something about the person of Christ, you change who God is. You can't do that. 
If you change something about the work of Christ, you add something to, it's meaningless. These are very, very critical things for us to understand. The last thing is we see that servanthood is modeled to us, modeled to his men, modeled to us. And then he gets into why that is so important. Uh, and it's, as he goes low, we, we talked about that, part of what God has called us to do, each one of us, if you belong to Christ, if you are a Christian, if you name the name of Christ, you've trusted him for your sin, and you are walking in the power of his resurrection, then you are called to go low. It's not about being seen. It's not about achieving stature and position. It's about being a servant. It's about going low. And it's not something that we do when we're being servants. If you talk to someone, well, what does it mean to be a servant? My mind immediately goes to, well, the things that I might do to serve. No, that's not it. What being a servant is, is it's an attitude of the heart. And we're going to look at towards the end of the message today, if I don't run woefully over, um, we'll look at some attributes, some things that we can grab a hold of that define us as servants of the Most High God. So uh, it, it's, it, it's out of the attitude of the heart flows effective service. It's never a means towards it. I, I've known many people over the years that I've been in ministry that, that sometimes will approach servanthood and service uh, as though that will be what brings them maturity as a Christian. no. As you mature in Christ, as you have these heart attitudes worked into your soul as part of defining who you are as one of his people, out of that flows effective service. You can never cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. Very easy to do, big mistake. You're better to sit at the feet of Jesus, learn of him, be conformed to his image, and then as he calls, to begin to serve because the attitudes of the heart are now in place. So uh, those are just some things that as we get into this, I want to look at beginning in verse one and we'll go through the first five verses. Then we're going to take a break and we're going to receive communion. And then we'll get into uh, actually the text that we have for this morning. So verse one, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, I looked at that and I thought, wow, he loves his own. Uh, in John 10, he calls us his own sheep. In Hebrews 2, he refers to us as his own brothers, his family. In Ephesians 5, he refers to the church as his own bride. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, he uses us, uh, he, um, again, metaphorically, as his own body, the body of Christ. Uh, verse 2, supper being ended... The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So it was in the devil's heart, in Satan's heart, that held the evil impulse against Jesus. We know that all the way back in Genesis, the very first prophecy in the Bible, uh, after man had fallen, that uh, when God is cursing humanity, he's saying that uh, from your seed will come one, and 
He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. That's a reference to the coming Messiah, the work that Jesus was about to perform here. And so uh, we see that it was in the devil's heart, this, this evil that he wanted to, to take Jesus out of the way, uh, and that he impressed it from his heart to Judas's heart. And Judas, we'll see further in this chapter that as he takes the bread that Jesus gives him, that he is filled at that point. He is, he is possessed, if you would. And he gets up and he leaves. We don't see him again until chapter 18 when he is betraying Jesus with a kiss in the garden. In verse 3, it says, The Father had given him all things and, and into his hands. And we understand that Jesus was not a victim here, but a victor. Romans chapter 8 says we operate from victory. We are more than conquerors, it says. And in that sense, Jesus could have backed out any time that he wanted. But he didn't. Why? Uh, Because the Father had given all things into his hands and he willfully went to the cross. So as we look at this, on the evening before the torture of the cross, we see that Jesus, wrapping himself with his towel, uh, he's not thinking about himself but he's thinking about his disciples. And that is an act of truly loving them to the end. So I want to take a few minutes, and uh, if the guys could come up and and pass out the elements, I want to just take a little bit of time before we continue with the study this morning. We're going to pass out the bread and the cup, please. Uh, And just take some time for reflection. Uh, Here we have Jesus in this chapter in John chapter 13 we have him in the upper room and this is where he ushered in the new covenant in Jesus in his own blood and and we see that uh, in Luke chapter 22 that that Jesus said he'd earnestly desire to eat this Passover together with his with his his men with his disciples and then he talks about the new covenant in his blood and, and that how his body would be broken Uh, for us, how his blood would be poured out for us. And so as we're at this juncture in this chapter, I want to take a a pause uh, and we'll talk about communion for a bit and and then we'll, we'll take the elements together and then we'll go back to the study. So as we think about, as we consider communion, um, it's important that we understand some things about it. I look at communion, it's sort of a two-sided deal. Uh, One is I use communion to mark time in my walk with the Lord. What's been going on in my life since the last time I came to the Lord's table? There may be things that I need to repent of. There may be areas that uh, I need to get right with him, some areas that his Holy Spirit has convicted me of. It's not a time for shame. It's a time to get right. It's a time for maintenance, if you would, uh, in our walk with the Lord. If you are not a Christian, I would encourage you not to take the cup unless you want to transact with him. And that's a very simple transaction. It's simply saying, Lord, I trust you with my life. I turn from the old life. I repent of it. The word repent means to turn away from it. It means to change your mind. I change my mind about the old life and I embrace you. I trust the work you did on the cross was for me. And that when you rose from the dead because death couldn't hold you, you offered me power to live a life that is way above the cut. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you, have that transaction with him. It's a simple prayer. 
uh, just praying something like what I just said. Uh, and, and you're actually stepping into the kingdom of God. For the rest of us, those of us that have been walking with the Lord, it's a time again, to, for remember, it's a time to do business with him. It's a time to do business with others. I mean, uh, there have been times where I have had uh, ought in my heart. And the, the, the scripture says that if you are going to present your gift, then if you, and you remember that you have ought with your brother, in other words, you're, you're in a place of, of opposition or in a place of conflict, he says, go and be reconciled to him and then come and take your gift up. And that's, again, part of what I go through when I come to the Lord's table. And it's just saying, Lord, show me my heart. And, and it, so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that it's a time of celebration. It's a time, I mean, these guys with the first communion, the first time they came to the Lord's table, it was a, a celebration of the Passover lamb. And Jesus knew that by the next day, he would be in the tomb and that he was the Passover lamb. These guys didn't quite get it, even now, at the, the night before he was crucified. And yet Jesus knew. And so as he's implementing the new covenant in his blood, he's saying, I will taste death so that you don't have to. And if there's ever anything that we need to rejoice over, that's it. That not only do we not taste death, but we actually are guaranteed eternity in God's presence. And Jesus, remember when he was with Martha and Mary when Lazarus died and he said, you know, I am the resurrection and the life and if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Uh, and what a great promise for us. And then he says to the, the ladies there, he says, do you believe this? And I would ask you, church, do you really believe this? Do you believe that your life, even though you'll lay this body down at some point, that your life will go on forever in the presence of God? That's part of what we come to the Lord's table for as well. So I want to read something from 1 Corinthians. This is the Apostle Paul uh, uh, talking to the, the Corinthian church. He had some correction for them as well, but I'm going to read just kind of the heart of what he's talking about here as far as the Lord's table goes. In verse 23 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that your body, the body of your son was broken for us. That you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever would believe, just simply just believe in you. That salvation would come by grace through faith that we wouldn't perish, but that we would have everlasting life. What a blessed assurance that is as we sang the song this morning. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you, we praise you that Jesus became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God and, and through having that righteousness that we would gain entry into heaven itself. We praise you, we thank you this morning and we just ask, Lord, that you would bless this. It's in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. Going on in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in this, as we, as we take the cup, 
it's not literally the blood of Jesus. There are some that, that make that claim. That's, that's a false doctrine, but it is representative of his blood. And then as we come and we drink of the cup, that we're remembering his death until he comes. We're celebrating the fact, not that he died, but that he died for us. And, and that when he did that, we're told in Hebrews 12 that, that he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, that he despised the shame. And when he had made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a blessing we have in coming to the Lord's table, taking the cup, uh, the cup that, as we're looking in the Gospel of John, it's the cup of suffering that I talked about it last week, that he was soon to take for each person, for anyone who would come, offering freely salvation. Let's take the cup. Before we get into the text, I, I want to go through some slides. You know me, I'm kind of slide happy. Um, but I like having a visual. I want to talk about the seating. <laughs> at the Last Supper. We're in the upper room. We looked at the outside. We looked at the blank room, uh, all of that the other day, or last Sunday. And, and now, uh, it's something that strikes me as being, well, it's kind of important. The first slide I want to show you is a very famous slide. It's the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Do you have that? We do. Now, tell me what's wrong with this, gang. Cheers. Okay. Right? They weren't eating on sawhorses. I'm sorry, I looked at that <laughs> and I thought, those look like sawhorses. They look like really fancy sawhorses. Yeah, all right. Anybody else? Take a close look. There's 13 people there, but Judas isn't there. This is a very Catholic painting. Mary's there. There's nothing in God's Word that says that Mary's there. He's there with his guys. And it's not a sexist remark, it's just... There's nothing in the biblical narrative. And they didn't sit at the table. And it probably wasn't a straight table. It was probably, next slide please, it was probably what's called a, a triclinium table. And this is an artist's sketch of what it might have looked like. And, and you know, I, I resist. If you'll notice in the slides that I show you guys, I often resist having actual people in them because, especially Jesus, I, I just, I resist the Irish-looking, red-haired, blue-eyed, and they're always kind of glassy, looking like he's about to cry. Uh, because in, in the Ten Commandments, this is not to have a graven image. And those, as far as I'm concerned, that's a graven image. And, and it may remind people, and I'm not trying to nitpick, but, but I resist that because I'm looking forward to looking into his eyes. I have no idea what he looks like. I'm just happy with it being that way. Anyway, it would probably have been a triclinium table, was very popular in the first century in, in Rome and in the Roman Empire. So uh, a three-sided table, the guys would come in, they would go counterclockwise around it, and then they would sit down the way that they uh, had arranged. And let's look at the next slide. I did a little pencil diagram, well, well, computer diagram, and then we'll fill it in here in a minute. And it, it would have a center area that people could serve in. You could serve everybody at the table in this horseshoe-shaped table by going up to the center and passing out the goods. Now, the next picture kind of fleshes out this, but they filled in the center, and I don't agree with that. But it's just kind of, this is a photograph I found online of a triclinium table. And it would be for people, if you notice in the biblical narrative, it says that they reclined at the table. What they would do is they would lie down. They would surround the table with pads, with uh, not mattresses, but, but pads or, or cloths. They would 
Uh, what's that? Big yeah, big pillows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had bing bag chairs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was surround the table with, with mats that they'd lay on and they would lie down. Generally, they would lie on their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand unless they're left-handed and they'd probably recline the other way. But they would recline at the table. Uh, and so uh, when you look at this triclinium table, it's an interesting setup. Uh, and it may not have been three sides. I wanted to say, there's nothing in the Bible. I'm in an interpretation here, kind of heavily, out in the weeds. No, we're not in the weeds. But um, I am. this is just giving you some conjecture. I think that there are some things that go on, some interaction that happens with the guys at the table that we need to understand one way that this was laid out. And the following slides, this is something that was done as I stood in the, way, in, in the upper room in, in Jerusalem there, uh, on the second trip to Israel, I went with a, a group of pastors. I've shared that before. And we were standing in the upper room and a guy actually hauled out a whiteboard and he drew this diagram. And I was kind of blown away because I thought, wow, that really explains a lot. Potentially. It may not have been this way, but it's a, it's a plausible explanation for the dialogue and the interaction that we're going to see playing out in these chapters, chapters 13 and 14. So before we go too far into it, I want to look at this and look at the seating at the Last Supper. All right, so looking in the lower left, I've got a, a little doorway there. This is like if we were looking down from the ceiling, looking down on it. See the triclinium table, and I don't know how many, I mean, we know that there were 13 people there, Jesus and his 12 men, and then there would be 12 by the end of it here, and we'll look at that. Uh, but they would file in and come around the table and, and then sit down. So understanding that, next slide, please. We see that there is definite inter interaction between John and Jesus and between Jesus and Judas. There's also interaction, interaction from Peter here. The other guys don't say much in the narrative. They were there and the place was full. It was him and his men, uh, as I mentioned. But we know that here's one possibility of the seating. I have two. Uh, that they say that John was leaning on his left elbow, so that would have put his head sort of into Jesus' bosom, and that's how the narrative talks about it. And that Judas would have been on the other side. And there are many people that state that the place of honor at a dinner like this was to the left of the host. And Jesus being the host, that Judas took the place of honor, which is kind of like Judas, right? So... That's one way. And then Peter has interaction with them from the other, other corner of the table. Now, Peter is the last guy to walk into the room. Can anybody think about why? He's the protector. Who's the first one to draw a sword when Jesus gets arrested? Peter. Yeah, he, he took up the rear. I mean, these were dangerous times. We've looked at that. The Jews were out to get him, and Peter would have been on guard. And, and we see through his character, it's just kind of this impulsive, impetuous. I picture him being a big guy. Just probably because I'm a big guy. But no, seriously, I mean, here, here's Peter at the last place in the table. We know that he had to have proximity to Jesus. He wouldn't be on either side because Jesus has interaction with Judas and John. So it makes sense that he would be the last guy coming into the room, and so he would be across the table. Uh, and and uh, John, again, has his uh, head on Jesus' chest, and uh, either that or he sprawled across the table and put his head on his chest, and I don't see that happening. So anyway, next slide. I think that it was this way myself. And this again, this is just some fun. When they came into the room, who's the guy that had the money? 
Judas. Who would have paid at the door? Judas, they rented this room. And so Judas is the guy with the money, and he would come in, and they'd circle around, and he would be the first guy in. Jesus next to him, the host, and then John, with his head on Jesus' bosom, would be next to him. And again, this is just fun. I tossed both of these out. It might have been either one of these. It might not have been either of them. But there were definitely proximity issues if you don't look at it in, in the way that we've got it laid out here. Now, at one point, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. We'll look at that further on in John 13. I'm not going to look at it this morning. And, and Peter says, he, he says that he motions to John, right? Probably because there's a lot of conversation and noise in the room. And, and he, he's like perplexed. He's, and, and it says in, in Matthew, he says, is it I? Uh, and the other disciples were going, is it me? And, and that Peter motions to John, what's he talking about? And John asks Jesus, see? And so there would have been proximity for that to happen with this seating arrangement and for none of the other guys in the room to really catch on to what was going on because we're told that they didn't get what was happening. When Next slide, please. All right, we see John with his, his head on Jesus' bosom. Uh, next one. Judas, as soon as Jesus says, he who I give the bread to uh, is the one that's going to betray me, he, he dips the bread, he puts it in Judas's mouth, and Judas is out of there, and none of the guys pay any mind to that. It says that they were supposing he was going to buy groceries or to get stuff. Uh, and so it would have left then 12 guys. Judas wouldn't show up again until chapter 18. So at this point, and in, he's there in this morning's narrative, and as we'll look at next week, but after those things, it is Jesus with his 11 guys, and they would become the 11 disciples. Who knows who the 12th was? Apostle Paul. I believe, well, the, the 12th in the book of Acts is Matthias. He shows up, they cast lots for him, and I'm thinking, well, it doesn't sound real spiritual, but maybe that was a take. Uh, and then you never see him, you never hear from him again. And so I personally believe that Judas's replacement was the great apostle Paul. There are uh, 24 thrones in the elders in, in the book of Revelation, and that's the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles, the 11 plus Paul. At any rate, Judas is gone. He won't be in the story until chapter 18. So that's what I look at when I look at the seating at the Last Supper. Again, I throw it out there so that we can kind of get an idea, sort of a, a visual of what's taking place. Now, verse 6. So in the first five verses, we look at Jesus taking the initiative with this servanthood thing. And imagine the men, imagine what was going through their minds as Jesus went around the room and, and he took this towel and he dipped it. He's actually wearing uh, a towel, an apron. And he's dipping it in the water and he's using the towel that he's wearing to take the dirt off of his men's feet. Imagine the eye contact. Imagine what would be going through your mind if Jesus, you'd been walking with him for three and a half years, he's making all these crazy sounding statements now that he's got to go and I'm not getting that because I thought he was here to set up his kingdom and drive off Rome and all of that. And yet he's coming and he's humbly taking the position of a slave. We talked about that. This isn't something for a servant. This is something for a slave, the lowest one in the house. And this is something that a slave would do. Imagine the look in his eyes as he came to Judas because Judas was included in this foot washing thing that Jesus did. So verse six, he, he's, 
been washing the guy's feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, and, he, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, the word my there is not emphatic. He's not saying, are you washing my feet? He's just saying, are you washing my feet? Uh, because it's not that his feet didn't need washing, but it was about who was wanting to wash them. He was figuring, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to do that. Uh, and Jesus answers verse 7, and he says to him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you will know after this. So again, here's where that living parable kind of kicks in. You will know. This is, there's a whole lot more going on here, Pete, than washing feet. And I want you to understand that. I want you to connect what I'm doing now with what I'm going to show you later on. And he'll show the guys, he'll teach them on this, but there would be still more to be revealed as these guys would reflect back. And John, as he reflected back as he wrote this gospel, I would imagine that his heart was full as he remembered the things that Jesus did this night. Verse 8, And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, And I wouldn't want Jesus to say this to me, but he says, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So was there more going on than washing feet? You bet there was. You know, the cross is not mentioned specifically in this passage, but there's a shadow that it casts over every word. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about it. he's going to go and he's going to wash them, wash us. And that if we don't partake of that washing, we have no part with him. Very serious, very clear. Again, these guys wouldn't understand it until afterwards, but he is doing this as a living parable. So it's important to understand that if we don't take part in the humble service that Jesus performed for us through the cross, that we have no part with him. There is a very clear line. You're either in the world or you're in Christ. And, and you know, I grew up in a false religion and I thought I was part of it, but I realized that that was the world kind of dressed up in religious clothing and I still wasn't in Christ until I released my life to him. And, and, and very important to understand that. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So here's Peter. First he's telling Jesus what not to do, and now he's telling him what to do. Uh, you ever do that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I've noticed that it doesn't work real well um, when I tell God what to do. <laughs> but here with Peter, this is, is sort of well-intentioned false humility. Oh, no, Lord, then, then wash all of me. Do, take every, do the whole deal. Uh, and he's still trying to tell Jesus what to do from too much to not enough. And uh, yet one of the things that kind of seeps out here, gang, and we'll talk about it as we go, and I think it's very telling, is Peter is not a broken man at this point. Jesus is going to prophesy over him that before the cock crows, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. Not just once, but three times. This night, as Peter's very impetuous and he's very bold and he's making claims that he's not like the other guys. We'll get into that as we go along. Just some great dialogue there and looking at what pride does to us. Peter is very prideful here. Just like you and I, and the Lord was going to need to break him in order for him to be useful. And we'll see that as these stories go on, as, as these accounts, as we study these in, in the weeks to come. So, 
Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore he said, You're not all clean. I want to take a moment here and talk about sanctification. Um, Very important doctrine, but actually a very important working reality in our lives. Uh, When I, by faith, trusted Christ for my sins, I was sanctified. I was declared holy. That's what the word means. The Latin word sanctus is the word for holy. I was by declaration deemed holy. Does that mean that I was all cleaned up in a practical way and now I will never sin again and I'm just going to have this little halo? No, it doesn't. But it means, though, is that I was positionally sanctified at my conversion. And now I am being practically sanctified as I walk with him. As he cleans us up, we're already clean because of the word that he's spoken to us. If we belong to Christ, we are clean. And yet he is doing a work in each of us that will last until we go to be with him, that will last our entire lives. And that's as he puts his finger on different areas of our lives. And he begins to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We'll look at that when we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that as that process comes about, he asks one thing of us, by faith, that we simply cooperate with the work that he wants to do. Allow him to cleanse us. Allow him to work in areas of our lives. That's why I've told you before, and I'll share it again. It is very dangerous for you to presume that you know God's agenda for the person sitting next to you, spouses included. That is a recipe for conflict. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, let God have his way in your life. Don't worry about other people's lives. Well, don't look at that at the end of this book where, where Jesus is having dialogue with Peter and John. He says, what is it to you that I have to do with him? You follow me. And that's really an exhortation for us because it's very easy for me to see how dirty your feet are and to not allow the Lord to wash mine. And, and that's what he wants to do. It's personal. It's personal. So let him have his agenda. He has a wholly different agenda for the person next to you or the, person, the people in your life than he has for you. Cooperate with him personally. Let him do the work. Show up. Let him do the sanctifying work, the cleansing work that he wants to do as he comes to wash our feet. Because we're already clean, but we need to have our feet washed. And that's what he's saying here. In John 15, he says the same thing. In chapter 15, verse 3, he says, You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you as he comes, and we'll look at it there when we get to him being the vine and we being the branches and his father being the vine dresser. Great passage. Look forward to teaching that. Verse 11. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you're not all clean. Judas here had his feet washed. And I would submit to you, he had his feet washed. That was pretty much it. Um... We'll talk more next week on Judas as we look and we get into the, the dialogue that Jesus has uh, with him and with the interaction as we looked at with the, the seating and all, the interaction that the guys have in that whole thing before he leaves the building not to show up again uh, until he's with the Roman soldiers. Um, 
So looking at verses 12 to 17, Jesus now explains what he did, and he calls his disciples to follow his example. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? (sighs) He's going to be on the cross by noon the next day. And he is just going to, and you'll see this if you look in these chapters from here all the way through 17, there are a lot of red letters if you have a red letter Bible. Very little black letters, very little narrative. It's mostly teaching. This is some intense teaching that Jesus begins to launch into here, having just given an object lesson. It's not about washing feet. I'll tell you that. Yes, it was. But it's not about, now we make a ritual out of washing feet. And I, I, we've done that. My wife and I were part of a, leading a, a marriage retreat a few years ago. And we did a whole foot washing thing. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we're teaching what that's symbolic of. Because again, it's symbolic of an attitude of the heart. Uh, Jesus could care less how many feet I wash. As long as I, he understands that I understand what foot washing represents here. And that's what he's going to teach his guys. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Do you, by the way, call him teacher and Lord? Is he your teacher? Is he your Lord? I pray so. So he encourages their commitment and their devotion to him. Verse 14, and if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So I want to look at four things here about foot washing. The first, let me read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, If there be any deed of kindness or love that we can do for the very meanest and most obscure of God's people, we ought to be willing to do it, to be servants to God's servants. That's great. Uh, The second thing here, as as far as foot washing goes, uh, it's not a ceremony, as I mentioned. It's a way to live. It's an attitude of the heart. The third is this is not find a list of things to do. Uh, It's very easy for us to fall into sort of a works-based righteousness. You got to operate from the knowledge that if you belong to him, you have received grace upon grace, infinite supply, and you will continue to receive his grace as it's appropriated by faith in your life. It's easy for us to begin to think, if I do this, if I serve God this way or I do that, then he's pleased with me. And he may be pleased in it, but he's not more pleased with you. He is already pleased with you. He is already madly in love with you. He is already calling you his son, calling you his daughter. He has already appropriated infinite grace for your life. These are things that are marks of a servant. They're marks of a heart that is given to him. Why? What's our motivation? It's a response. This is fully a response to his love. Understanding how much he loves me, how much he goes to the ends of the earth for me personally, for you. This is a personal relationship. And as we walk in that relationship, we walk in the newness of life that he brings. We walk in the grace that's inexhaustible. We walk in his forgiveness when we simply come to him and we say, Lord, I've blown it. Please forgive me. It says in 1 John 1, 9 that we are cleansed. All of this is a response to his love. Our life, wanting to live a life that counts for something in God's kingdom, 
is a response to the master and Lord of my life, to the love that he's already demonstrated and continues to pour out. The last thing is we can fall into having a critical heart, a critical spirit about others. We love to talk about how dirty others' people, people's feet are. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We can fall into gossip. We can become calloused and insensitive by living in a sinful, fallen world and can go about expressing our own fallenness rather than his sufficiency instead of stooping to wash someone else's feet. It's humbling. But we can fall into that, folks. I can fall into I know if I can, you can. And we can start to be critical of others instead of realizing that's, that is a person for whom Christ died. And yes, we want to be wise. And yes, we, there, there, are, there is evil out there and there are evil people. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, the people that Jesus hung out with. If you take a good close look at them, they were not people who had their act together. Not by a long shot. Sinners and harlots. I mean, that's what he, he specializes in. And, 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 and I don't want to sound crass, I mean, yet he really does specialize in taking the lowly among us. And that's what he does. He says for you and I, he says, go low and I'll exalt you. You want to exalt yourself? I'll bring you low. And so it's our choice. Verse 15, for I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. So it's an attitude and not an action that we're talking about. Uh, well, it is an attitude and an action, I should say. Uh, but it's also in word and in deed. So uh, it's easy to trust him to cleanse me. But I need to trust in his example in cleansing others, in washing others, in stooping low on the behalf of others as a pattern for my life. It's not just about me being cleansed. It's about me being used to show his love to others in tangible ways. And sometimes that requires, very often it requires going low. Verse 16, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. He who is sent, that's an interesting word. It's the word we get for apostle. It's apostolos. And it's a messenger, one who is sent on a mission. Now, he's not talking about this is reserved exclusively for an apostolic ministry. Those guys, when they died, the apostolic age was done. He's talking about his disciples as he sends them and as he sends us into a world, a fallen, messed up, ugly, evil, dirty world. He sends us and he sends us as servants. If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. So he's saying, okay, guys, take it out of the classroom. Okay, guys, take it out of Sunday morning at church. And, and let your life reflect these things Sunday afternoon through Sunday morning. Let this be the habit of your life. He's saying, if you know them, that's great. Bravo, you know, kind of. Yeah, it's good. I want to know these things. I want to be a pupil of his. But there's a vast difference between being a pupil and being a disciple. A disciple is more than a learner. A disciple is a doer. As James says, let's not just be hearers of the word only. Let's be doers of the word. 
It's one thing again to understand the theory of being humble. But the theory, understanding the theory and, and, and of being a servant, it's not worth very much. But the practice of being a servant, first of all, pleases God. And he is pleased in it. It's not that you're pleasing him in the big sense, but you are wor- you're operating in a manner that's consistent with his nature, his character. And he's pleased in that. Also, it fulfills our calling because all of us call in our life. We are all called to be servants. This isn't optional. This is central. This is part of what sets us apart from the rest of the world. The other thing is personally, the Bible tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, I am so blessed as I serve the Lord. I have never been able to outgive him. And I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about with my service, with my heart, with what he's called me to do. It is always, and that's a universal principle. And perhaps in an area where the Lord is showing you perhaps an area of selfishness or an area of pride, I would just encourage you, do business with him. Allow him to do that divine surgery in your heart. Allow him to produce a servant's heart because it brings blessing and contentment unlike anything this world can offer. I want to look briefly in closing at five attributes of a servant. And uh, I'll move through these quickly, uh, more quickly than I'd hoped, but as usual, I'm going long. (laughs) So um, just quickly, as we look at this account of Jesus washing the guy's feet, we look at Peter first saying, no, 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 and then saying, oh, all of me, and then seeing that he needs to experience what brokenness will bring because that is what God uses to conform us to the image of his son. As he forms his character in us, sometimes he has to pry our fingers off of our way of doing it before he can do his way through us. It's very, very important. It's really easy to think in serving the Lord that I've got an idea of how I'm going to serve the Lord. And I've got an idea how God's going to use me I went for years thinking that God needed to use me as a pastor. Okay, so he's doing that now. But I went for years thinking, I came out of Bible college kind of, well, not kind of, very arrogant and thinking, man, I'm just ready to be used to bless the world with my ministry, Lord. You know, oh boy, oh boy. And the Lord resisted me. And man resisted me. And I made a lot of people kind of sick. Because I had a lot of blow. And it wasn't until the Lord took me through some very definite times of brokenness that I began to realize, you know what, Lord, your agenda for my life is a whole lot more important than mine. Because out of brokenness comes surrender. And out of surrender comes humility. And out of humility comes servanthood. Very important. So the first thing I have here is a servant seeks the glory of his master. It's not for vain glory. It's not so that I can be seen. It's not so that I can be heard. It's not so that people can see me walking that person across the street. Oh, my flesh rips and tears. Yeah, because there's a battle that goes on there. But, you know, I want to do it for his glory. I want to be able to say, praise the Lord. When somebody recognizes something that I'm doing for him, it's not about me and it's not for me. We are not created to contain glory we make a mess when we try to do that. And God is a jealous, jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. 
So when that temptation comes, I call it hold up a mirror. Imagine you have a little mirror in front of you and somebody says, hey, great job, man, praise the Lord, good, good, good. Well, you're so good, you're so, you just did such a great job and all that. And it's great, I love the encouragement and I, I, I think it's good that we should cultivate a culture of appreciation in the church. And yet when it comes to glory, hold up that mirror, reflect it upwards. Praise the Lord. Thank you for the encouragement. Praise the Lord. I had an email yesterday. Uh, it was just encouraging uh, from the student thing that we did on Friday night. And it was, and, and that person understood it too. It was, but it was, praise the Lord. He answered our prayers. Uh, and, and, and that's what it's about. We're not gonna, we don't want the glory. We want him to get the glory. It's, he's the king. It's his kingdom. We're his servants. Servants don't get the glory. The king does. A servant's second thing is a servant sacrificially seeks the highest joy of those he serves. Now that's one that is just the opposite of the way this world works. We live in a self-centered world. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. Yeah, of course. I want it to be about me. I want to be the star of my own movie. I want to be the guy that writes the script and then I get to play every part. That's how our world is. Wouldn't you agree? It's not how the kingdom works. It's not about you. I remember one time I was hearing about a guy that was doing a mission trip. I was sharing this with the guys the other night. And, and he, this guy was talking to a bunch of students that were getting ready to head off to another country on a, on a mission trip. And, and uh, he got up there in front of everybody. He says, let me tell you about your birthday. Because you know how that one day a year, it's your birthday. And you get up in the morning and maybe your mom makes that special breakfast and you go and everybody's saying happy birthday. Your phone starts to go off. You're getting texts from your buddies and phone calls and everybody's excited and it's, it's your birthday. And, and then you go through the day, you get to work or to school or whatever and people are, wow, oh, hey, happy birthday, man. Oh, thanks, you know. And it, maybe your girlfriend gives you a special lunch and then you go, there's a surprise party that night and it's just your day. And this guy gets this whole thing out. He's talking to all these people going on this mission trip and he says, I got news for you all. It's not your birthday. <laughs> I just laughed, but I thought, how appropriate is that when it comes to serving the Lord? Just remember, guys, it's not your birthday. It's about him. It's about his glory. And so a servant sacrificially seeks the highest joy of those he serves. It's not about self-centeredness. It's about others-centeredness. That's the heart of servanthood. Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross. And yet he's loving his guys. He's teaching his men. He's modeling what their life needed to look like after he was gone. That's why he's doing it. That's why he has these parting instructions for his men. You think that if he's going to be going to the cross the very next day, he's going to be arrested this night. He's got five hours, as we mentioned. We go three and a half years, the first 12 chapters, five hours, the next five chapters. And he takes those five after, hours and he packs it with instruction because he loves his men. And he wants their life to count after he's gone to the cross, ascended, and sent the Holy Spirit. And that's the condition within which we find ourselves in the church. It's not about us. It's about others. It's about esteeming one another as more important than ourselves. The third thing here is a servant will forego his own rights rather than to obscure the gospel. 
You ever think, I need to share Christ with that person? And think, yeah, maybe not. And then not? I'm being honest, I have. Probably more times than I'd like to admit. I don't want to obscure the gospel. Time is short, folks. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where I think about it sometimes. I mean, like in the line at the grocery store, and there's people in front of me, people in back of me, and they're, you know, fumbling with their wallet or looking at their groceries or whatever it is, putting them on the belt, all of that. And I think, you know, if these people around me, I don't know them, but if they don't know Christ, they will die the second death. They will spend eternity in torment if they don't come to know Christ. And it doesn't mean that I start, you know, wearing a sandwich board and marching up and down the street. But what it does mean is that rather than obscure the gospel, I'm going to risk. I'm going to risk that person, that relative not liking me. And I have some relatives that don't like me because I share the gospel with them. I'm going to risk. And that's what it's about because there's no risk that I can take that's greater than what he's done for me. So a servant will forgo his own rights rather than to obscure the gospel. The fourth is a servant is not preoccupied with personal visibility and recognition. Kind of ties to the glory thing. Are you in a, in a place where you're saying, Lord, how would you use me? As opposed to saying, Lord, this is how I'll let you use me. That's a slippery slope. Uh, I, like I said, I, I went through that. But I, want, I don't want to be preoccupied with if I'm visible or not. I, I've shared with you folks before, I remember being on my hands and knees with soap and water and a bunch of rags in an Episcopal church that we were using for our Sunday night kids ministry in my old church. And the Lord speaking to my heart about how pleased he was in that. Uh, at that time, it was as much as Billy Graham was filling, filling football stadiums. And I literally wept as I washed that floor because the Lord touched my heart. It's not about how visible I am. Nobody knew I was washing that floor, but, but he did. And that was enough. The last is the servant anticipates and graciously accepts the time for his decrease. John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must decrease. I fulfilled my ministry. I have done what God has called me to do. I'll tell you what, you, you guys know, some of you know, I spent many, many years in the business world, in the corporate world, and in, in, in uh, a couple of companies that I had and all. And, and I came to know something about ministry as well as business. Everyone, every ministry has a birth, it has a life, and it has a death. It has an end. I'm not going to pastor this church forever. Praise God. I mean, I get to go be with him. And I pray that the Lord sends me a Timothy, somebody that could come in and that I could pour into, that could carry on the work. And, and I'm, that's one of the things I frankly pray for because I want to see the work go on. Uh, I sometimes shudder at the condition of the church because I see how there are so many things going on. And yet I know that this ministry, this church has a birth, it has a life, and it has an end. A ministry that God has given you, whatever ministry it is, it has a birth. And if you're thinking about a ministry, let it be a birth, because unless you act upon the call on your life, you're not fulfilling what he's called you to do. There's something for all of us to do. 
And so let that be a birth. Let that be a time where you step into the work that he's calling you to. Understand that there will be a time, and, and a, a lot of times there's discouragement, a lot of times there's you know, issues and all that. It doesn't mean that he hasn't called you. It just means that sometimes the work is difficult. But there is a, an end to that. And, and somebody who's a servant knows it's not about him. And if, if, I, if I don't keep this thing going, then it's just not going to happen. That's an unhealthy ownership to the ministry God's given you. There's a healthy ownership. It's like, I'm going to do the best I can to fulfill the ministry that God's called me to. Whether it's cleaning the church or, or whatever it is, uh, if it's just simply being a good spouse, because that's a huge ministry and it comes above things that we do in here. Let that be something you do well for as long as you do it, understanding there will be an end to it. Don't fight that. I remember when I was doing prison ministry, man, it was going great. We, were, we had a growing group. They would lock us in a room with like, it started out with about 30 inmates at this jail. And by the time we were finished, it was more than 60. And they, the guards literally locked us in a room. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. You know, it's like, <laughs> I love being locked in a room with a bunch of guys that have very heavy tattoos. And, I mean, and that just showed me that they were hard timers. And, and I'm not being you know, weird about that. But I mean, and I began to realize, you know, if this is going to go forward if God wants us to go forward and he's going to be my protector here. And, and, and yet we had this really going prison ministry. And then as quickly as it got going, I mean, we went on for quite a while and the Lord shut it down. And I flipped out. I was like, what did I do? Is there sin in my life? You know, what, how did I? how did this happen? This needs to go forward. And I was really striving and really struggling. And, and finally, and, and a, a wise brother said, John, why do we get excited? God raises the ministry up. If we're thinking, if we have the mind of Christ, we should be just excited, as excited that he took a ministry down. Because it just shows that he wants to do something else some other way with you. And he did. And it really helped me to settle my heart about that. So understand Nothing is, everything's for a season. And, and, and that as we look at that, we anticipate graciously accepting the time for our decrease. So we're out of time. I had like actually five more pages of notes, but I'm not going to bore you with it. No. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you um, for this look at servanthood, what it means, what it doesn't mean. And Lord, I pray for each person uh, in this room, those listening, watching online, I pray, Father, that you would touch hearts. There's much to do. There's a call in each of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you've counted us worthy to put us into the ministry. And Lord, with that in mind, I pray for each one that you would clarify that call. And not only clarify, but there would be a response that they would respond to the call on their, each one's life, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And that, uh, Lord, we know there's safety in a multitude of counselors and that others would bear witness to the, the work that you're doing, the work you want to do, and that you would be glorified by it. So, Lord, here we are. I, I, I just think about that, Lord, and, and here am I. As Isaiah said, when you called him to your very throne room, cleansing him and then his response is, Simply, here am I, send me. 
Lord, let that be the attitude of our hearts. Let us embrace these things with a servant's heart. Build a servant's heart in us, Lord. Instruct us. Mold us. I pray you would find hearts that are yielded to the working of your Holy Spirit in the area of servanthood that we would simply point to and bring glory to and exalt our King Jesus. It's in his name that we come before you and that we pray. We pray that you would bless the rest of our day. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.